So obviously, and there's ethical questions, you know, when a self-driving vehicle is going to be involved in a crash and it's going to hit a pedestrian or hurt the occupants of the vehicles if it hits the walls, uh, you know, to, to make these types of decisions. Welcome to Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. A look at the changing risk and resilience landscape with insights on the challenges facing businesses today and tomorrow. Hi, this is Renee Koa of Zurich North America. Tighten your seatbelts. The fleet of the future is heading toward a parking lot near you. The advances are amazing. More advanced driver assist systems and driver monitoring systems are becoming standard equipment in vehicles. The goal, of course, is to have more self-driving vehicles sharing the road. And then there's the electric vehicle revolution as car makers gear up to replace vehicles with combustible engines. Companies that are thinking about upgrading and expanding their fleets have a lot of emerging issues to consider. Joining us for a discussion on these innovations and the emerging issues for companies with commercial fleets are Chris Delaplane and Chip Jones, risk engineers with Zurich Resilience Solutions. I'll let Chris and Chip introduce themselves. Chris, do you want to start? Yes, good morning, Renee. My name is Chris Delaplane. I'm a senior risk engineering consultant with Zurich Resilient Solutions. I've been working with Zurich for 14 years and I'm a transportation specialist. I work primarily with our fleet customers and I serve large casualty, middle markets, global energy, direct markets, all different types of areas where I see all different types of fleets. And so I'll turn it over to Chip. Good morning. I'm fleet director for the Zurich US and Canada fleets. We have roughly 1,240 vehicles in the United States. I've been with Zurich 21 years, uh, all in fleet, and I've seen a lot of changes through the years. And over the next year, year and a half, two years, we'll perhaps see some of uh, the greatest changes. Terrific. And I wanted to clarify and ask both of you, when we use the term commercial fleet, what kinds of vehicles are we talking about? And how many commercial vehicles does a company need to have to qualify as a fleet? Well, let me start. There's a couple nuances to this. Now, we're talking particularly business vehicles here that are insured by a commercial entity such as us. And it could be any size and scope of fleet, really. Uh, and then there's also commercial motor vehicles that are regulated under the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. And today we'll be dealing with both because all these markets are being impacted by this, these changes. Yeah, I agree. Um, the commercial vehicles often align under a common uh, fleet insurance policy. And as most know, uh, insurance follows the vehicle, not the person. So. We're looking at generally standard classes of vehicles. At Zurich, we're using primarily sedans and some light trucks. Uh, in other industries, uh, fleet commercial means heavier, medium uh, type vehicles. And uh, a company with a couple uh, company cars, that's a fleet too, right? Yes. yes. Okay, so this will impact uh, a lot of different uh, sizes of uh, businesses. Sorry, 25 cars or more generally. Great. I wanted to start with the autonomous or self-driving technology. The benefits are considerable and some of the benefits include uh, reducing the number of accidents and traffic deaths, 
as well as a dramatic reduction in traffic congestion and CO2 emissions. So Chris, can you walk us through some of the tech being added to vehicles? It's a lot more than backup cameras, right? Yes, you know, initially back in the 60s and 70s, we started seeing safety advances and, and the seatbelt was one of them. We started seeing cruise control being added, different types of features like that, you know, comfort and convenience types of things and, and safety. And then we started in the 80s, we started seeing the introduction of ABS systems, braking systems. And as things graduated, we started seeing traction control, safety features, things like that being added. And more recently, in the late uh, 2000s, we started seeing the development of not only traction control and, and systems like that, we started seeing backup cameras. Fleet started liking those because um, one of their biggest causes of crashes in, in a very small, short period of time was um, vehicles backing. And uh, so they had a camera that they could see from behind and utilize those when backing in short distances. Then in the 2010s and so forth, we started seeing other technology such as automatic assisted braking on backing crashes and pedestrian sensors and things like that. Uh, forward collision prevention warnings and automatic braking systems that go along with those and, and adaptive cruise control where the vehicle uses radar systems and, and lasers to pick out where vehicles in front of it are and, and then they can adjust the distances for how much space management that the vehicle, the driver's level of comfort is. And they, They'll also do automatic braking, uh, lane departure warnings, um, lane centering technologies, just a, a multitude of different types of things that are kind of coming together as this kind of autonomous vehicle. They're componentries of a larger system or a larger design that's in mind. So uh, the fully automated self-driving car, how far away are we from that? Most estimates are saying, you know, 2030, 2035 in that range. They're piloting uh, these vehicles right now in communities around the United States and around the world. Now, they're not fully self-driving. They're usually attended by either a, a remote pilot or a group, a field team, or somebody that's actually uh, monitoring the situation through cameras and so forth, and, and they can make help make decisions for the vehicle when it gets confused, I guess or there's a pilot in the vehicle that's actually in the vehicle okay. to assist. And it's interesting, you can actually on that NHTSA website and look at the markets where they're testing and the types of locations they're testing them. Some of them are, are being tested on interstate highways um, in large commercial vehicles that are going uh, what we call middle miles driving. So from on-ramp to off-ramp, and they're transitioning to uh, the last mile delivery. So in another unit, EVs could come and pick up those trailers and so forth and bring them back to terminals. There are a lot of companies that are piloting them on universities and parking lots, um, on campuses of industries and, um, you know, passenger transportation like these um, ride sharing services. They're piloting this technology and they're being utilized right now and where states permit them. And actually, Zurich, we actually insure some of this risk. You've probably seen the pizza chains that um, are running these types of things. And, and another interesting element is that they've been successful enough where a package delivery company has, has signed on to do the same type of same types of deliveries in, with parcels in the little neuro vehicle that, that's uh, out there. And these are typically level four vehicles. We didn't really get into that too much, but um, a level four has a remote field team that if, if the vehicle runs into a challenge, 
uh, they they can take over and and help it solve the problem it's in. And they're going at like 25 miles an hour or something like that, maximum speed. So it's conditional. It, it, you know, they define the parameters of that vehicle in the level four and when the pilot takes over and so forth. So So have either of you uh, been driving or test driving any of these vehicles with some of this new technology? I have to a very limited scope. Some of the newer vehicles have exactly as uh, Chris is saying, you know, all these new advanced features that are helping guide us down the road. Um, you know, we started with analogs, stability control devices, keeping vehicles from rolling over uh, to uh, now keep you in your lane, so on and so forth. You've got some cars, uh, buzzers and things that go off in the seat and in the steering. So you feel in the steering wheel, uh-oh, this vibration, and you realize you've done something a little bit wrong or you're getting in that direction. You need to correct pretty quickly. So as this new technology is added, you've both said it's becoming something of a riddle for companies buying these vehicles with some of this technology that they don't understand. Can you talk about that? I can uh, say it's really been an interesting adventure, and it's not all progressive forward. Some of the backup cameras, for instance, uh, as Chris was talking about, we've seen those on vehicles only to disappear, only to return, and certainly they uh, started out as independent objects that were after installed, and now a lot of them are OEMs, and uh, they're getting more and more commonplace. But not every step has been progressive along the way, and that's created, I think, a lot of confusion. Chip, what's an OEM? Sorry. Oh, I'm very sorry. Original equipment manufacturer. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, and I, oh, I, ahead, I've driven and I've piloted. Fortunately, with my travel, I have an opportunity to rent cars. And, and when I'm out there in the field, I like to try various um, cars. So I'll pick a different car when I'm at the rental car counter just to see what it has. And these things are challenging. There's ways I can go in there and see, because uh, a lot of times the owner's manual isn't in the vehicle and, and, you, and the, the people at the rental car desk don't understand what the technology is or may not use it or incorporate it. And so through the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, I can go in and decode the VIN and look what types of technologies on that vehicle. I can grab the VIN number and look at it and say, hey, this has these types of systems. And as Chip was talking about, some of the haptic systems, the haptic meaning that it's a sensory uh, feel thing. So I was driving up north of uh, Denver recently and in the construction zone and it had lane centering technology and, and lane departure warning systems and so forth. And I'm driving down the road and it's looking for the stripes in the road, the, the cameras and the sensors and things are looking for the for the stripes in the roads and what's going on. And it's in a construction zone, you know, where they black out old lines and put in new lines to follow the new features of the road. And the system actually was picking up the old lines and that were going toward a barrier in the wall. And it, I was, <laughs> it was trying to, it, it gave me a sensor saying, hey, look, you're, you're going the wrong way. And, and without any signals or anything, if I don't use any turn signals or anything, it's still going to give me that, that haptic feeling. And it's going to try to stop me from making a movement and give me feedback anyway. It's not necessarily going to try to stop me. It's going to give me feedback. And so... Um, it, it's something that if I wasn't aware of that, it, it, you know, it, it could shock, it, it, it will shock a driver. And, right. um, it, it, you know, if I don't know that that technology is right. on Right, you beach. think something's wrong with the car. Yes, and I'm going yes. at a wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So you mentioned the Traffic Highway Administration. Is that a website anyone could access? Yes, it's uh, NHTSA.gov. NIT? No. Yeah, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. So it's NHTSA.gov. And just a simple search for, uh, they have lots of resources on ADAS systems or advanced driver assist systems. And they even have, have a nice series on, they've hired a social influencer to do videos about some of the technologies, not all of them, but you know, can provide companies with information out there about these systems in a way that they can sh- demonstrate to their employees or have their employees watch and understand. So they have a lot of good resources and describe these systems very well. That's great to know. And even as someone who, like me, is going to have to buy a new car soon, Excellent, excellent advice. Um, there's been some concern about the vehicles that are going to be totally autonomous. And I realize, as you said, this is a ways out, but could you clarify what some of the challenges are for these? Well, it's just it's something we're not used to. There's a lot of potential items and chip can elaborate maybe even more on this than i can because he's actually looking at the procurement of vehicles and and how they're going to influence the fleet and has been involved in this in a long time but just from my perspective you know it's something we're not comfortable with you know we see a vehicle without a pilot in fully autonomous vehicles some manufacturers would exclude any driver controls at all so then they're going to redesign the interior compartment so you can rest or lounge or dark out the windows and you know, all sorts of things. There's other types of things like cyber risk. When there's connectivity, there's always a potential for, um, you know, dark forces or whatever we would want to call them, malignant forces to come in and try to steal information or um, hack into the systems. They've actually done tests and they were successful in uh, being able to interrupt braking systems and do things like that. So, Obviously, and there's ethical questions, you know, when a self-driving vehicle is going to be involved in a crash and it's going to hit a pedestrian or hurt the occupants of the vehicles if it hits the wall, uh, you know, to to make these types of decisions. So there's a lot of lot of things. And I think Chip probably talk more about that. I think with autonomous, we're looking quite a bit further down the road um, versus our immediate scope. But I can definitely say that uh, there are going to be some big trust issues at first in that technology, you know, we will, I'm sure, have legal concerns um, mm-hmm. um, if the vehicle, you know, ends up in an impact situation. So a lot of factors there. From a fleet perspective, we certainly have our eye on that, but that is something that is, I'd say, significantly farther down the road. And like Chris said, uh, 2930, about eight, 10 years, and that's um, a little bit father outside our normal looking window. Okay. So let me go back to some of the technology that is advanced technology that is being added now. We talked about how some drivers don't know how to operate some of it. Are there people who know how to repair it? (laughs) Yes. Is that a challenge? It's uh, becoming more of an IT thing, I think, versus just strictly an old-fashioned mechanical thing where we used to bolt on, uh, you know, basic parts. This is, this is a whole different enterprise in and of itself. And we're seeing right now in the industry, mechanics, uh, some of them are just timing out. Uh, some mechanics that went to school for mechanical repairs now are 
forced to either adapt and learn some of the new technologies or just drop back a notch and do more basic services, tires and oil changes, which aren't necessarily as profitable to that mechanic. So some of them end up exiting the industry. Going forward, we're looking at just a lot more technical things. You got vehicles with uh, over 42 computers on board that govern everything. You know, Chris was talking about earlier, from a lot of these semi-autonomous features, you know, braking, acceleration, you know, all these advanced calculations. So uh, there's just a lot of different stuff uh, that may not meet the exact skill sets of, you know, the folks working on cars today. Yeah, and if anybody's ever dealt with an electrical gremlin, they are extremely hard to diagnose. And a lot of the technology is gonna point the way, but when there's a wiring issue, or a short or somewhere along a line of miles worth of wiring harness, they're very difficult. And that's where these systems are going. They're going, like Chip's saying, all these systems, all these sensors, that's what's helping drive some of these costs and repairs that are driving a harder you know, insurance market. It's very difficult because of the escalating costs in repair and maintenance and finding knowledgeable techs that can work on these types of things. We currently have this huge fleet of vehicles out there that operates on on older technologies, engine power systems and so forth. And now we're having the, all this new materials being put out into the market and new equipment. And it's very challenging for, um, you know, for people like me, let's say in my age group, to adapt. I agree with Chip that it's, hey, I'm just going to stay where I am and I've got a few more years and I'll let the new people deal with it. That's a very challenging environment right now. A lot of cars are crushed, meaning destroyed simply because they can't get to the bottom of an electrical gremlin. That's Chris. No you know, kidding. Just wow, some that. thing that <clears throat> is intermittent and you can't get to the bottom of it and it may be impacting your safety. And, you know, at some point they pull the plug. These things are very, very difficult uh, to run down. And also I, I probably got to jump in that mechanics uh, of today do have the ability to, um, you know, learn forward and will have the ability to work on some of these things. For instance, when hybrid vehicles came into play, a lot of, uh, brands would have you go back to school for that specific technology. So you may be able to work on the internal combustion engine vehicle for that company, but not necessarily the hybrid unless you've been to the school for that, had that training. So they, you know, they've still got some ability and can press forward if they um, choose to do so and learn the newer technology. And, you know, it's just, it's different. So it's, it's just different and it's not the deal that some signed up for. As Chris said, well, I've got a few more years. Maybe I'll just uh, do what I'm doing and, and then time out or, you know, some younger ones may make the jump. Great. Well, I wanted to move on now to electric vehicles or as you've taught me, they're also called EVs. Car manufacturers are really hitting the accelerator when it comes to these and Several companies you've noted are prepared to produce a majority, if not all, of their new vehicles as electric models as early as 2029. Electric cars are obviously greener than gasoline-powered cars with uh, internal combustible engines, but there's challenges too, right? Chip, can we start with the current infrastructure? Um, EVs are designed so people can plug them in at home, but what if they're not at home? <laughs> are there enough charging stations? Sure. And these sure. aren't free, right? Not free. And that's gets a little bit misleading. Right now, uh, we just don't have an infrastructure. You've got um, 
number of charging stations throughout the United States. You've got probably a vast majority of them right now in California, but you don't have them in all states, especially some of the middle and western states. So you get outside a medium-sized city, and you just don't find too much. Now with the infrastructure, I think the government's pumping in some money, and we'll see more of these. Um, and once uh, the infrastructure starts to appear, in better numbers, then we'll see manufacturers start to churn out more vehicles. Right now, there's such a limited hodgepodge of offerings. As you may know, the car market is transitioning in the United States from more of a sedan market to more of a sport utility crossover type market. And that's been in the works long before this. Mm -hmm. And so we see more SUVs on the road, more crossover type vehicles, more utilitarian type that you know, help us with our everyday lives. It, it's going to be interesting because there's just such a loose network of uh, things right now. And my understanding is as the infrastructure populates, you'll quickly see more alternatives. One of the biggest things right now is, is charging stations and battery capacity or how much miles per charge can you get. And that's a real challenge because you get a vehicle like some of these at 200 miles per charge. Well, they're not even mentioning that by the time you load it with four adults and some gear, all of a sudden that 200 miles per charge becomes 175 and that just doesn't do much. Uh, you know, get you somewhere and then realize you can get a fast charge that may get you half of the difference to take you to the next destination, but that may not get you home at night. Mm -hmm. So then you've got to figure out on the charging stations, uh, the ones that we're doing in houses, how those will be done. And then for those that live in uh, apartment dwellings, other structures that aren't as accessible for individual upfitting without well, and stuff. Yeah, and Chip, I want to get back to the need for more charging stations, and it'll be a good thing once we get them, but what's the cumulative impact of everybody charging their cars at the same time? Is the electric grid ready for this? Exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, we have these rolling blackouts, and, and we certainly, you know, I think we all wonder right now. We've got a lot of challenges right now. And then everybody, if they start charging at once, and then the costs, if you're charging during peak hours, uh, it, it may not end up being as cheap as we think. It certainly isn't free. From what we know, electric capacity right now, charging up under most average circumstances, ends up being about half of what gas costs. That, I think, may be a bigger number than some people are, are thinking it is. Some people just take electric, plug it into a wall, it's free. But, uh, you know, we're going to be charged when we go outside our homes and inside our homes. We're going to be charged by our utilities. So it's, it's not free. Well, now I'm going back again to um, something you talked about regarding how long an electric vehicle can maintain its charge. You shared that it's become a thing called range anxiety where people driving electric cars are worried if they'll get to their destination. And what I think is kind of ironic about this is that when I was in my 20s and driving a beater car, <laughs> I was worried about the same yeah. thing. But that car costs uh, maybe $200 and an electric yeah. vehicle starts at upwards of 50 grand. So is range anxiety a real problem and how can we solve it? Yes, absolutely. I think just more exposure and what we think is going to happen is there's going to be significant advances with uh, battery capacity. And I, th I think they're there 
in some respects, it's just a matter of how much do you want to pay for your vehicle? Because as we understand, when we're able to start buying uh, fleet vehicles that are electric vehicles, you'll be able to, for some of the vehicles, be able to buy them in certain allocations, like, you know, one might be 230 miles per charge, and then the same vehicle might be 300, and then 375, and then 425. And, and really for fleet, we're in a diversified fleet that it's everywhere across the United States versus a you know termite fleet that is based in Chicago. That would be a nice situation, by the way, for electric vehicles. But the widely diversified fleet that's everywhere, you're going to need a lot of miles per charge. You're going to need over 400 miles per charge uh, to have something significant. And that technology in the same brand vehicle is, is going to cost us quite a bit more right now. So we're just waiting on that uh, to evolve past infancy and uh, more examples out there and uh, the price to come down. And I think you have to be adaptive. If you're planning on owning a fleet or, or just a single vehicle, you have to understand the characteristics of that vehicle and what the requirements of it are and what your capacity is for things. And, and be able to, to, to go out there in the market and find your uh, charging stations. I had a colleague recently that was in West Virginia, and he, he was at a, a location that had a charging station, and it was in uh, a remote rural area. He saw that they had a charging station, but it was being powered by a, a diesel generator. He, a lot of times you can identify these charging stations online, know where they are. With these charging stations, there's, believe it or not, there's a lot of vandalism that goes on them and they become inoperable. So somebody pulls a cord out or the cord breaks or the machine breaks or it's IT, it doesn't uh, download information. So there's always these types of particulars that I would want to be prepared for if I'm going out beyond my range, that range anxiety. Um, I, I'm a motorcyclist and I ride across the United States and it's very, uh, in particularly some of the Western states, sometimes it's very hard to find gasoline. And we're a fossil fuel adapted society. I can imagine if, if I spend $50,000 on a car and I expect it to take me to, uh, let's say, Amarillo, Texas, you know, it, it may be 386 miles. Uh, I better have some I better have some charging uh, plans in mind along the way and where I can charge it and how long I'm, I'm going to be waiting for that and and build those types of things into my trip and then how to charge it at night. Hopefully where I'm staying may have a charging station or near where I'm staying. So uh, uh, yeah, I have a hybrid right now and Zurich's very, very uh, advanced on these vehicles. I really love the hybrid I drive. I'm very, very pleased with it. It's seamless and I can envision myself an electric vehicle and I'm looking forward to that technology. But anyway, there will be a lot of challenges. Very definitely. One other just quick thing to add to that is uh, with these charging stations, it isn't always one size fits all. Uh, some brands are plug specific. Now there's a little bit of retrofitting and some brands will supply you with a general one for general uh, charging, but they also have their own um, entity where you can charge uh, a specific brand of vehicles. So uh, that makes it all the more complex really. Oh man, you're making it sound like programming a VCR, <laughs> which I am not appreciating. <laughs> That brings back painful memories. Yeah. Yes. So, but on the positive side, you both noted that um, compared to cars with internal combustible engines, EVs don't have as much that can quote unquote break. They don't have as many moving parts. 
they have uh, less to service and maintain. You basically have tires and brakes on EVs. You have tires on everything, brakes on everything, but brakes to a little lesser extent because um, driving the car, accelerating, deaccelerating, you've got some active participation with braking. So you have significantly less maintenance. Um, on EVs. There's always going to always challenges and especially going back to the infancy of all this. Um, what they're finding now is there's some problems with the wiring potentially in some vehicles and the sheathing of the wires. So we're moving to more uh, sustainable products throughout everything that's produced, I think, anymore. For a while, it was car seats, more soy based type products in those seats. That's fine. That's in a cabin. But using soy-based uh, wiring sheets in uh, car manufacturing is a very attractive thing for rodents. And so we've had rodents get in and chew up the wiring, and guess what? You basically destroyed a vehicle. So there's a few things that we're learning along the way. I think that's really critical, too, because just like Chip said, um, when we had a downturn in the economy, there was thousands of vehicles parked and even we go back to that electrical gremlin when a when a rodent decides to start nibbling on wire in in the middle of a hundreds and thousands of miles of wiring in a vehicle and and you have to track that down uh, that's that's a really big problem it's a fascinating element of this and how, how we deal with those types of things is is going to be an important element of, of evs because uh, as chip noted it's a very simple drivetrain it's not like the old engine pistons and crankshafts and heads and carburation and all this types of thing. It's a very simple motor. And, um, you know, some of them have a, a motor on every wheel. It just depends on, on what you're getting and what the drivetrain is. They're going to make it as compact as possible to maximize uh, passenger space. So you have a simple drivetrain, but to get back to all the sensors and all the technology and all those types of things where, where um, again, the vehicle gets a lot more complicated to service and maintain. So, yeah. So for both of you, with all of these um, advances in the future, what does company do if it does need to replace some of its vehicles now? What would you recommend? Right now, I think we're still where we are. I think we're with mostly internal combustion engines and hybrid uh, vehicles. With hybrids, there's a little bit of a caveat right now. We're not seeing as many hybrids being produced. So this is one of those terrible situations, like I said, where there were backup cameras for, for a minute, then there were none, and they were trying out these different things. Unfortunately, we're trying to find more sustainable solutions, more solutions to save our environment. And uh, hybrids are doing a pretty darn good job. Chris has one now and can attest to that. But they're taking a little mini step back from those to move towards uh, electric vehicles, in a way it's very challenging. Uh, right now, in conjunction with the pandemic, we're in a situation where car lots are virtually empty. If you'll see half you know, the cars, less than half in some brands, not a lot of cars out there, not a lot of cars produced, and I say cars, trucks, um, for 2021 model year. And so we'll have kind of this mini economic demand cycle, I think. So if we're replacing now, we're probably going with uh, internal combustion engine vehicles as they've gotten more advanced and, um, you know, uh, uh, 
little easier on the pocket through the years. But uh, when we get out of those moved electric vehicles, there's still going to be a huge market for it. You're going to see probably more fleets um, adapt these things before um, consumers do on the wholesale side. People see them out there running. Oh, okay, that works and uh, then mm -hmm. go try one out for themselves. You won't see people just Im immediately flush their um, internal combustion engine vehicles and rush out and buy an electric vehicle at today's cost. They're gonna wait. Okay, makes sense. Well, I wanna thank you both so much for joining us, uh, but you're not done yet because it's time uh, for the lightning round. For each question, why don't we have Chris answer first, followed by Chip, and answer quickly, but feel free to elaborate. Are you ready? You bet. One, what was your first or your most memorable vehicle? Well, I want to start. I'm an avid motorcyclist. I ride a BMW R1200 GSA, and it's one of the most spectacular uh, pieces of equipment that I've ever had the thrill to, to ride. And uh, I just love it. And talk about adaptive technology. I have adaptive headlights, adaptive cruise control on a motorcycle. And uh, motorcycles have all types of um, traction control and ABS sensors and things like that. So there's a lot of technology even in these vehicles. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. And they do make my riding better. So um, anyway, that's my favorite vehicle. Okay, Chip, tap that. Well, I don't know. I'm not on the motorcycle scheme because um, Chris is a lot braver man than I am. I've had a couple motorcycles that just haven't achieved very many miles. Uh, some of them less than maybe 50 miles. So that's pretty bad. As a young man, I was presented with a um, uh, very large family station wagon is my car and I just couldn't wait to you know shred that albatross so I came home with a 1970 olds uh 442 with a 455 oh. engine and a four-speed transmission I dearly loved that car it was so much fun it got me in so much trouble but I'm pretty <laughs> that, that was those were in my in my early 20s so uh, we're all good now but I'm with a, a 70 um uh, it's an LS6 specification um, 454 Chevelle. So right now, um, another big green muscle car. <laughs> That's why okay. you're a fleet manager. <laughs> <laughs> so two, if you could take a road trip anywhere, where would it be? I lost my opportunity this year. My glasses broke and I was, and I was going on a trip up to um, uh, riding on my motorcycle up through um, Colorado and Montana and over toward Washington and Idaho. And that's what I've been thinking about since COVID and the pandemic. Our national rallies was canceled the previous year, but I'm, it's still on my mind. I was looking forward to that, but I didn't get an opportunity. But that's where I'd go right now if I could. And Arches National Park. So uh -huh. Do a lot of photography so i guess if you've noticed one theme uh chris and i are probably both in trouble there if we were trying to do that in an electric vehicle today i mean you could do it but it's going to be a lot of stopping uh but yeah arches national park for uh, day and nighttime photography wonderful three what's the one risk that fleet managers typically overlook i think for me it's drivers a common theme among people is anybody can drive and um, you know it's an automatic task and that's what makes it problematic because and Chip can attest to this but fleets have turned vehicles into microclimates of our house uh, 
we have all the comforts of home. And there's so much distraction, infotainment systems. There's so much, so much going on. When I was talking about uh, renting the car, I can disable uh, certain features on ADAS systems, the, the driver assist systems. I can disable them. So I'm when I'm driving, I'm looking at those features and trying to assess how they're working and so forth. But we don't think about the driver as as a work in progress and how to develop that driver and, and develop their understanding of the vehicles they drive and how to stay alert and how to maintain your vigilance while you're driving. So we have this kind of forgiving sense of driving and we think, okay, it's easy, uh, it's no brainer, it's automatic, and that's exactly the problem. And it's not it's not really considered that, hey, we have to really train our people in, in all the aspects of our vehicles. We didn't rehearse this, but I'm saying almost the same thing, yeah, driver distractibility. Um, well, I could probably do this text when I'm driving, and that's an absolute no-no. I mean, you're, what, 25 times more likely to um, have a uh, accident or an encounter if you're doing something like that. Uh, we do get bored in our vehicles. Most of us have been driving since age 16 or so, and we're so familiar with them. It's just like going to the grocery store. Um, we get out in crowds, and you know, once we've uh, driven an area for a while, we're more susceptible to try and do other things, take phone calls, uh, read the mail, going down the street. Heard of people doing that. And I and also I've heard that a disproportionate number of very deadly crashes happen relatively close to somebody's home where they're actually familiar, very familiar with the um, the landscape. So you know, you're just thinking, well, darn it, I'm almost home. I can, you know, I can answer Chris's text now. So, <laughs> wow, it's that's um, sobering, and it sounds like um, if you can offer one safety tip for drivers, which is question four, what would it be? Um, I think that you've kind of answered that, <laughs> but I'm going to let you uh, answer it anyway. Again, I call smartphones dumb phones because they provide so many distractions in one in one little device. And, and I always talk about when I talk to drivers, I said, it's if you ever see the Lord of the Rings or these movies where the little troll uh, has precious the ring and, and the, the, he can't let go of that ring and he's coveting that ring. And when I go and I do training, all, all these drivers, they'll have their cell phones right in front of them and, and all the bings and the pops and everything. And I, 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 I tell them, if, if you touch that phone while you're in this room, you're ejected, no, no questions asked. So uh, bury that phone, put it in a trunk, uh, in a vault, a double secret uh, encrypted lock, whatever it is, put that out there and stay focused. The most dangerous thing we do every day is driving in, in the United States and around the world, really. But it's the most dangerous thing we do. We have to be alert. We have to be aware. We have to be at our best when we're driving. So that's my tip. I'd say don't drive long, long periods of time without brakes. I realize that, um, uh, our lives are more important than our uh, phones and things that distract us. We've got to be careful. If somebody was in an accident, you know, hit somebody and they died, you know, you're not going to forget something like that. So it's just not worth the ultimate risk. It's really good advice for, for everybody. Now I'm going to switch over to a completely lighter question for our final one. What's your favorite vehicle from movies or TV? Well, for me, I, I grew up in the 70s, so I started driving in, the, in that era. 
And in that time frame, there was a big, um, uh, I don't know, a craze almost about trucking and, and CBs and all, all different types of things. I also was a kind of a car fanatic like, like Chip was with vintage vehicles and the Chevelle 454s, uh, Dodge Chargers and all the, the neat cars. But the one that really that kind of brought it all together for me was in the movie Smokey and the Bandit, the Trans Am Burt Reynolds had, and, and then also the Peterbilt, that, or Kenworth, I think, I can't remember. But uh, that um, uh, Jerry, um, uh, I can't remember his name. Jerry Reed? Uh, Jerry Reed, yeah, the great guitar country music singer. That's my favorite memories of, of vehicles and, and pictures. I want to put in a disclaimer about mine first. I really don't drive like this. But probably my favorite was um, the Charger and the movie Bullet. And also the Mustang, both 68s. Those were just awesome cars. Now, they shifted them way too many times, obviously. <laughs> How many times did you shift that four-speed? But um, sliding through uh, what the streets of San Francisco, that was just awesome. And I've always been a muscle car fan, so I'm going to have to say that big overpowering uh, uh, Hemi Charger. Uh, Chip and Chris, this was just terrific. Such great advice. And uh, we really, really thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. And we're glad to be here. And thanks, thanks so much, Renee, for uh, moderating and, and uh, taking the time to do this with us. Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a comment or review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Let us know what you think at media at zurichna.com and join us next week. The information in this audio recording was compiled from sources believed to be reliable for general information purposes and is intended for Zurich clients and business partners. The information contained here may be useful to you or your enterprise when developing your own policies and procedures. The policies and procedures applicable to your enterprise should take into account the specific circumstances of your business and business environment, which is beyond the capacity of this podcast. Any and all information provided is not intended to constitute advice of any nature and is specifically not legal advice, and accordingly, you should consult with your own legal counsel. We do not guarantee the accuracy of this information presented or any results and further assume no liability in connection with this recording and the information provided therein. Moreover, Zurich reminds you that the information provided cannot be assumed to contain every acceptable safety and compliance procedure or that additional procedures might not be appropriate under the circumstances. The subject matter of this recording is not tied to any specific insurance product, nor will adopting these policies and procedures ensure coverage under any insurance policy. We encourage listeners to seek additional information from credible sources. Thank you.